no more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Welcome to Media and the End of the World. This is Ralph Beliveau. Adam Kroon is off, but we'll be back shortly uh, to join into the fun of talking about some of the exciting events that we can still enjoy because the um, because the media world hasn't ended yet. But we have some very special guests today on the podcast, and uh, they are, uh, I will introduce them, Alani Stain, who is a colleague with me here at the University of Oklahoma. Hello, Alani. Hello. Good to see you. Thank you for joining us. And we have a special guest visiting the college this week who is going to be joining us on the podcast today, Tanya Rashid. Tanya, thank you. And Thanks. welcome. Thanks for having me. So Tanya is here visiting uh, the Gaylord College at the University of Oklahoma. Uh, I'm going to say that sentence again. Tanya is visiting us here at the Gaylord College at the University of Oklahoma because of a course that Alani is doing on women in media. And uh, Alani, can you tell us a little bit about the course that you're doing? Yeah, actually, this semester it is a OU presidential dream course. And just a little context on what that means. Um, Every semester, the president gives a certain amount of money to certain classes that you can pitch a proposal for to say, if I had my dream class for this specific class, what would it look like? And I have been teaching the women in leadership class um, at the Gaylor College for a few springs now. And in pitching this idea, um, I came up with the title of being a woman in the 21st century. And my plan really was to not only highlight leaders in media, but also invite speakers to campus who are leaders in different professions, um, including STEM and design and education, um, entrepreneurship. So we have um, quite a few speakers coming um, through the course of the semester. And I wanted to highlight in the class through the speakers what it means to be a woman in the 21st century across different industries. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes we get to learn about and we get to see the stories of the high-profile women, um, but there are also women who are not high-profile and they sort of work behind the scenes, but they're still leaders. So in my lineup of people, I wanted to include both the superstars um, and also the people who do everyday leadership that people don't necessarily um, recognize. So that is the class and um, our first speaker is Tanya who is definitely not a behind the scenes (laughs) leader Um, and it was an interesting sort of shot in the dark to email her and say hi Tanya can you come speak to my class because one of my previous students had an interview with her and she said yes, and here she is. I think, yeah, I think one of the things that's a strength of, of this perspective, too, is it's kind of global in reach, that mm-hmm. we're talking about uh, women's roles in media um, in a lot of different contexts, since we all exist in kind of a global media environment now, too. So that makes sense. So, um, yeah, so I'm very excited to have you here, Tanya. I didn't, Thank know, you. I didn't know I was the first, first guest. <laughs> you are the one. Wow. Yes, very right. Yeah, so you, you, you set the bar oh, and everything wow. else, right? That's has a to lot of pressure. Sure. <laughs> so, um, so what? What's what's the? I, so you are a journalist and a filmmaker, 
Yeah, I'm a, I'm a correspondent. I work on camera. I'm a producer. Um, I can shoot. I can edit. I take pictures. Uh-huh. Do a little bit of it all. And can you talk a little bit, because your background is really interesting, because you've covered <laughs> a lot of ground. Can you kind of, like, what's your, uh, your, your bi- what's your biographical statement? What do you tell people? What do they need to know about you? I, I guess I consider myself a citizen of the world. Um, I grew up in some very interesting places. I was born in Saudi Arabia, then moved to Bangladesh after I lived there for a few years. And then after Bangladesh, I moved to Utah. And then after Utah, I moved to Los Angeles. Uh-huh. So I have seen, you know, two polar parts of the world. Uh-huh. One being Saudi Arabia, which is one of the most isolating parts of the world. And then seeing Utah, living in Utah, which mm-hmm. is also isolating in its own way. So is this a good time to be a global citizen, do you think? I think it's important that voices like mine are heard in this day and age because there's a lot of what they call fake news and, you know, the way stories are being reported, um, especially with our president who's in charge. It's very um, local. Mm-hmm. I, I don't see enough international stories being put out there. So any chance I get to um, give exposure to those voices that are not being heard, I take. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Is there's kind of this tradition of, I think, um, Americans being seen and, you know, arguably correctly as not really having enough of an investment or interest in the rest of the world. So you're kind of an agent to work in the in the opposite direction. I think it's it's not that Americans don't want to. I think they're just not getting that proper exposure. For instance, if you go to London, where I lived for a while, you'll see that with the BBC, there's constant exposure to international news and what's happening in the world. Whereas if you tune into CNN today in America, it's all based on what's happening with Trump, what, right. what Trump did at five in the morning, six in the morning, seven. In the morning. It's it, there is very, very little investment in international yeah. news. I don't even think most people are aware of the difference between CNN domestic and CNN international, right. which is another part of the operation that actually does international coverage. But it's happening internationally. Right. Yes. So, so you, it doesn't come here. You don't see it in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. There's yeah. There's also. I mean, it's a it's a sea of stuff, right? I mean, we're surrounded by this all the time, and um, and people's media consumption habits are changing, so they're consuming things in different ways. What have you noticed in your? Because you've been doing this for a while. What have you noticed in terms of the way things are changing? Well, I've worked, the interesting thing about me is I've worked for legacy networks like Al Jazeera, CNN International, and then I've also worked with Vice Media, Mike.com, and um, there's been so many, (laughs) and another online platform. But I've worked in a lot of, okay, can I do that one again? Sure. Okay, so it's Vice, I work for Vice, work for Mike, and then what's the other online BuzzFeed. No, I'm kidding. I didn't do BuzzFeed. He's <laughs> not coming to me. I'll just say those two. Um, so I, I, I come from a very interesting part of the media world where I've stepped foot in both places from the legacy networks like Al Jazeera English and CNN International. And then I've also worked for Vice 
and mike.com. So I know how the digital world operates and I also know how the traditional outlets operate. Mm -hmm. Do you think the audience is like, because I think there's a clear break in the audience between those that's kind of a function of how old people are and what they're used to. Even the term legacy media, I use it all the time in my classes to sort of define the media world before the digital thing disrupted, you know, caused this disruption that everyone's still in the process of trying to respond to. I feel that the digital world is in constant flux. It's not stable. And that's why you see these, you know, new media companies rise, 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 and then boom, they're gone in a blink mm -hmm. of an eye. Whereas the legacy networks have power. They have been around for ages, so they continue to maintain their stance to some degree. Mm -hmm. I do see that the digital media has an influence, but it's I don't know if it's found its place yet, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I've always thought, I, I'd be curious what your thoughts are on this, um, that one of the things that audience members need to understand is where the stuff they're getting is coming from. Like they're, they'll often identify non-news producing mm -hmm. aggregator websites as where they get their news from. But those aren't news producers, right? That's where the Internet becomes a very dangerous place because people think that, oh, they have their phone and they take a photo of something that automatically that's journalism. That is not journalism. No, it's dinner usually, right? Because it's people <laughs> taking pictures of their food, right? Exactly. <laughs> or like, you know, that's how this whole fake news thing started because there's so much information being thrown at us on the internet. And that's why it's so important for journalists to have a platform and to continue telling stories in an ethical way. And also seeing that we, like, we... Like I went to Columbia's Graduate School of Journalism where I was trained by professors who taught me about the ethics of journalism, how to craft a story. And there's so much work that goes into it that I think is often overlooked with these websites. And mm -hmm. so I think it's so important. Yeah, I think and part of it to me is always that um, trying to encourage people to put a little bit more thought into what they're getting and what to make of it, you know, to sort of do when research. They, yeah. Find something on the Internet. See where else. See if there's other people saying the same thing before you go buying into it, you know, before you start believing something. But I think sometimes people just want to believe what they want to believe. Right, and they'll yes. just read it and say, well, <clears throat> This yeah. justifies. It's easier. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and it, well, and also because it agrees with what you think already. So it's sort of like, I want that to be true. Right. Yeah. And so, in fact, I told a story earlier today to a class about the, the there was this legendary guerrilla channel that supposedly was pumped into the White House to keep Donald Trump happy. And it was all made up. But for about 10 mm. minutes, I totally believed it because I wanted to believe it, because I wanted <laughs> to believe that, so that that he would actually want to get a channel that doesn't even exist and that actually these minions would run around and, and make it for him, which is kind of what I they did with the story. I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if that happened, you know? <laughs> yeah. See, now you're believing it too. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe yeah. I want to believe it. Yeah, that's, yeah that's what I th but I think that desire is really powerful because that's you know, it's like this idea that you want to associate. I mean, we all want to associate with what we think of as, as being right and true and and reasonable. But we also kind of want to be affiliated with people who are powerful and successful. And those two things sometimes don't go together. Go really together. Well. Yeah. 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 So, so uh, can you tell us, uh, tell the audience a little bit about the the kind of work that you do? Um, the work I do is. It's been all around the world. I've done stories, um, and particularly on women's issues. So um, most recently, I've been covering the refugee crisis on the Myanmar border, uh, on the Rohingyas. 
So I've traveled to the refugee camps for the course of two years. And I've done a story, stories that range from, you know, sex trafficking of young Rohingya girls from inside the camps into um, the, the larger cities um, of Bangladesh. I've done stories on um, the mass exodus as it was happening. Um, I've also covered um, stories on documentary, a documentary film on um, one of the, a, a mega brothel in Bangladesh, the largest in South Asia, I think. Mm -hmm. And I spent a month there and I did a story um, titled Sex, Drugs and Slavery for Vice News, um, where I follow the plight of sex workers and uh, the things that they deal with in their everyday life. Um, I've traveled to the jungles of the Democratic Republic of Congo, where I've looked into legal gold mines for the National Geographic Channel. I've looked into legal skin bleaching creams in South Africa. I've followed the largest hate group um, in Texas that want to kill Muslims. <laughs> I've done um, some pretty interesting stories, but I'm all about looking into looking beyond the headlines. Because mm -hmm. everyone sees the headlines in the news and then, you know, you're just digesting information. For me, I like to look beyond that. Mm -hmm. I like to know what the real story is. And mm -hmm. that's what I go for when I'm in the field. You're not going for safe material there. You're going for really edgy, kind of scary stuff. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because you said earlier um, the things you see and the things you experience <clears throat> when you cover these stories like the Rana Plaza collapse, for instance, or the Rohingya crisis. How do you, how does it affect you as a professional and a person, but also what do you do to sort of recover from that before you go into the next um, just gut-wrenching reality that is people's reality and, you know, that you tell the story about? So um, in the beginning, it was more so the, the, so in the beginning, it was about giving voice to the voiceless. That was my goal. I saw that in my childhood growing up, even within my family, there were particular instances where people were not being heard. And so I saw that as my life's mission to give voice to those people, um, people who are not being um, shown or seen. Um, and in that, I kind of ignored myself um, which it's scary because you're dealing with humanitarian catastrophe and sometimes you don't even know how to respond to it when you see it. You can't believe that a human being could go through such enormous tragedy. But what's inspiring about it is how they are resilient and they come out of it and they fight for themselves and they don't want to give up. And when you see that, that's when you feel like you're contributing to something where not only are you giving them a voice and a platform to speak, but you're also seeing this agent of change, someone who struggles so much, but still they want to change, change the system or, or fight for their lives. And I think that's what keeps me going. Um, and in addition to that, I have amazing friends, a wonderful therapist <laughs> who I've been seeing for many years. And um, I also have learned over the, because I've been doing this for almost a decade, is to take time off, literally taking time off. And I've been teaching, mm -hmm. which I mentioned to both of you, I've been teaching and, you know, I think burnout is real, especially when you're doing work inside of refugee camps or conflict zones. 
it will definitely take a toll on you. Everything you do, I believe, catches up to you, no matter what it is in life. So when did you figure out that you wanted to do this kind of work? Because it's a big lift. It's not easy. Mm-hmm. So at some point you must have gone, I can, you know, this is this is what I want to do and I'm good at this. So what was the, was there a moment or was there something that persuaded you to think this is the right thing to do? You mentioned about wanting people's voices to be exposed because they weren't. Is that what the drive was? It, it was several things. You know, in my childhood, seeing my mother in Saudi Arabia struggle to go out. You know, she couldn't vote. She couldn't drive. She couldn't even go to the grocery store without a male guardian and then seeing her feeling like a prisoner and living like a prisoner, then going to the villages of Bangladesh and then seeing my grandmother um, and the struggles she had to deal with living in a very patriarchal society, seeing you know slavery in my country, seeing poverty, all of that influenced my decision to do this line of work. Mm-hmm. I just felt like it, it, there isn't enough, inf- um, there wasn't enough exposure. And it's deeper than just like, I mean, I think it's my calling. That's the best way to describe it because I'm not thinking, oh, you know, if I do this, then this could happen. Or that's what people ask me. They say, oh, Tanya, don't you get scared that this could happen to you or you're putting your life on the line? And I really, of course, I do risk assessments and Mm -hmm. I take very um, careful decisions when doing my work, but I'm not afraid Mm -hmm. because it's my calling. Yeah, you know, one one of the things that's interesting is in some of the situations I know you've been in here describing, women's education is a critical problem because women are excluded from, they're either taken out of school when they're too young or they're not really allowed to get get involved in an education system at all. And um, there's a couple of other documentaries that have talked about this, that have talked about the kind of loss of culture that happens as a result. So that you're in a position to be able to tell these stories is fantastic because that's otherwise, not only would we not hear their voices, but you as a as a woman constructing these stories wouldn't be part of that too. I think that's a really good point you bring up because I think I also think that, you know, in often in different parts of South Asia they send and in the beginnings of my career when I was working there, they would send parachute reporters who would just fly in and just do a story and then fly out. And to me that just felt really just it wasn't the real thing. And so I know the language, I know the culture I know that the, there's certain nuances that I could get that no one could get access to. Mm-hmm. And I built my career on that uh-huh. using my voice mm-hmm. and my position as a South Asian woman that mm-hmm. knows the language and can go into these worlds to my advantage. Yeah, access is critical because mm-hmm. they have to trust you as a person who's going to tell their story. So what do you do to try to get them to, to, to tell you their story? Um, well, for instance, when I was in the mega brothel of, in Bangladesh, in Tolodia, I spent days inside of the brothel. There was no cameras, nothing. It was just me and the sex workers. And I was mistaken for one. There were a few dodgy incidents. But it gave them an opportunity to see that I wanted to know their world. And then they're seeing another woman that looks like them uh, and that they can talk to freely. Versus a white guy going in, yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, and you know, there's like a different level of intimacy when you are in that type of world. I think, um, and you know the the culture, mm-hmm. you get a, another level of access. Mm-hmm. What did you give up for your calling? <sighs> <laughs> a lot. <laughs> oh boy, 
I gave up my marriage. I'm divorced. Um, gave up. I mean, I missed baby showers. I've lost some friends. I've missed weddings. <laughs> a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. It's you, a lot of sacrifice. Yeah. But you've also, I mean, you've put together as a result of that a perspective, a global perspective that's really unique. That that is part of what that informs the rest of the kind of work that you do. I mean, so congratulations for that because oh, that's you. not easy. Yeah, that, that's a that's a that is a big lift. So I really appreciate that there are people like you who are making those stories available, and it's kind of an amazing time that we have this. <laughs> You know, this Internet technology, these digital resources that we can use to gain access to it. You know? Totally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I feel what what I love is that it's just not being seen by people in the U.S., but different parts of the world. And that makes me really excited when I get a message from someone in China or someone in, you know, Uganda who's seen my story in mm -hmm. Bangladesh. And they're just really happy with what I did. Mm -hmm. It makes my day. Yeah. How do you just out of, just to go back to a specific detail? What do people need to know about the Rohingya and what's going yeah. on there? Yeah, it's a very horrific incident. I mean, to just it's really complicated, but to just break it down in the most simplest way possible. Basically, Myanmar is a Buddhist majority country. The Rohingyas are the Muslim minority that live in an area called the Rakhine State, which is bordering Bangladesh. And for decades, they have been dealing with the brutal abuses of the Myanmar government. Um, and eventually it, I knew I had a I had a feeling something was brewing. And it's funny because a year before the mass exodus took place, I told my I work for PBS NewsHour and I told them that I know something's going to happen. Please let me go cover this. And um, anyway, then, then this mass exodus happened and hundreds of thousands of Rohingyas were raped, um, murdered. Um, their houses were burnt to ash. Just the worst things you can imagine happened to them. And they fled for their lives into Bangladesh. Mm -hmm. and, and, and from what I remember, and the now there's the largest refugee camp in the world, where over a million Rohingyas are residing. Mm -hmm. and it's very Bangladesh. difficult to cover, is what I've seen too, because there's a lot of kind of distraction going on to try to keep people away from understanding what was happening to the villages and things like that. Yeah, I mean, well, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, who is a Nobel laureate is walking every day with blood on her hands. I don't understand, you know, I think her Nobel Peace Prize should be revoked. How could she allow such a horrific thing to happen mm -hmm. is my question. Mm -hmm. yeah, so many innocent lives. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's taken. kind of a terrifying situation. And I think, you know, again, once again, in a U.S. context, it seems so far away, not just in geography, but in, in cultural understanding. And that's why I come in, because I humanize those stories. I show that these are human beings that are suffering. And there's a universal story there mm -hmm. that we should all connect with. I want to ask you about that, because in the initial footage that I saw you do, that the students showed in class, <clears throat> the thing that struck me most was how real you are and how you are it's it's clear that you're not doing this for the fame or for whatever recognition comes with it what i saw was someone who like you said it's your calling and you really there's no hysterical moments there's no like you're just what i could see you're you and you're telling the story and you want the spotlight to be on the story that you tell and the people that you highlight 
is that just a skill you have or is it something that you have developed over time? Oh, wow. That's a really good question. First of all, thank you. Um, yeah, I think when I'm in those moments, I think to myself, how can I show what is happening here and just be a guide Mm-hmm. into that world not you know there's some ca- on camera correspondence they're just like here I am I'm blah, 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 look at me and I just despise <laughs> and they always have that same jacket on right oh, they have the yeah. multi-pocketed cringe. khaki thing and it's yeah. like <laughs> I don't know for me it's it's about the people and giving mm-hmm. voice to the people and being able to communicate with them and bring bring them to say what they want to say and sometimes it takes another voice another person to sit and talk to them to develop that intimacy where they can feel comfortable and safe to share their stories and I find that there are a lot of foreign correspondents that go into these worlds who don't speak the language and are yelling at the fixer and saying what is she saying what how was she raped what time was she raped you know who was the person and then you see this survivor of unspeakable trauma being put on the spot Mm -hmm. and being pressured to answer a question that she doesn't have to answer to this person. Mm -hmm. But the, that journalist, that CNN journalist is on deadline Mm -hmm. and they have to get that. Can, can you explain what fixers are for people who are listening who might not be familiar with that term? Um, fixers are local guides who understand the language and the culture of a particular region and, they often take foreign correspondence and help them get the story. And I don't like the word fixer, actually. I think I would call them local journalists. Mm-hmm. Um, they they usually do more work than yeah. a lot of Yeah, we had uh, the, the documentary filmmaker Pamela Yates visited <clears throat> us a couple of years ago. And she does a lot of work in Central America. And she raised an, an objection about the term fixer, although that's yeah, like the term com- commonly used. But it does kind of reduce their role to something that's like it's somebody mm-hmm. buying tickets and opening the door for you when there's a mm-hmm. lot more to it than and that. And they're far more than that. Yeah. And, and often they get abused and put in weird, you know, situations and you know, I'd seen it firsthand. Um, and that's what I mean. Like when I go in, it's, 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 I'm, I have a very different system. I create a safe space. If you don't want to talk, then no problem. I'll go talk to somebody else. Mm-hmm. There isn't this, I don't care what the deadline is. I, I, I don't know. I have these ethics that I always follow. And so, yeah, my, my priority in my storytelling is giving voice and how can I bring their voice to the spotlight is my, or their story that's not being heard. How can I share this with the world? And that's every time I go into the field, that's my premise. Are, do you think that it's becoming um, – there are larger numbers of women who are involved in this? Because I know there's a large number of women involved in documentary. It's like mm-hmm. an entry point where people who are interested in doing media production might not be able to get into another part of the industry. But particularly in cinematography and some of the more technical work, I, documentary is a good place for women to enter. Is your Are you seeing that, that being – being a woman and doing this kind of work is is changing that there are more women involved in doing work like this than sort of the you know traditional bigfoot journalist dropping in it's still a very male dominated sphere and um it's i think it's still very challenging for women mm-hmm. to break in and there are women who are fighting the good fight like me mm-hmm. but i wouldn't say i mean yeah we're there are there are female documentary filmmakers and my best friend is one of them. She's amazing. Um, but yeah, it's still a big fight. I think it's mm-hmm. not, it's, it's a hard, 
it's a hard uh, space to be in. Yeah, the, the media industries have been very slow to address these. It's like, brutal. Internally. Yeah. You, know, you got to have really thick skin to survive <laughs> in this business. Yes. <sighs> Daniel, can you talk a little? Um, like I, a few months ago, I got to learn more about the term third culture kid mm. because my daughter wrote her um, college application and she said she's a third culture kid because she's not growing up where she was born and she's not growing up <clears throat> in the culture that is typical to what her parents' culture would be. Um, and she sort of, I could read in her um, essay that she was sort of struggling with this idea of who am I really? Yeah. Because I am this third culture kid and I'm not who I used to be, but I'm not where I am now either. And that kind of existential, if you want, uh, dilemma. Having read about and listened to what you've talked about where you grew up and all the different places that you've lived in, that's such different um or so diverse in terms of culture and location and all that to me you sound like a third culture kid I am. do you have that same kind of existential crisis if you want about who you really are and where you're really from or do you see it as because in my mind it's an advantage it's i would much rather have someone be a third culture kid and have experienced all these things than just a one-dimensional kind of i'm from this place But how do you see that? That is such a good question. You know, what's funny is my master's project for Columbia University was uh, I did a I shot, edited, edited and produced a documentary film, a 25 minute film on my identity. Oh, wow. So it's really interesting you mentioned that. And the the opening line of my film is, who am I? Mm-hmm. Um, and I am many things um, I've come to discover I think there's beauty and strength in that, definitely. And But then there's also this weird place you live in where you feel like a constant observer of things rather than a participant, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, people who have a strong, grounded, um, like, like the one culture, one thing, they have this sense of identity and belonging and I find that that's been very difficult for me growing up because mm-hmm. I still struggle with where I belong and I still deal with rejection from certain people in my own culture and I deal with rejection from people in America it's like a really interesting space to live in but it's also given me strength in my storytelling mm-hmm. where I've been able to go into different worlds and but it's it's weird because I just want to sometimes not be an observer and just be part of it mm-hmm. so when so what do you do with the idea of home what is that like, how <laughs> do you funny, think I say California that? is my home uh-huh Yeah, I, I think California, you know, all my fondest memories, my formative and horrible memories are in California. <laughs> I don't know. I just find that California is, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Then I see, go to Bangladesh and I feel like Bangladesh is home mm-hmm. too. California, Bangladesh is home too. Mm-hmm. There's this weird, there, there are some people who, uh, for lots of complicated reasons, argue that that one of the effects of the media environment that we're in be, is is this placelessness mm. 
that where we used to kind of belong to a place and find our identity in a specific location that because of the amount of media we and this most of this was actually kind of nailed down in the television era rather than the digital era but it's just gotten more complex in the digital era that you kind of lose your sense of place that's right? interesting the communities have been disrupted and um, you know, often for economic reasons, people are you know, economic migrants of various kinds. So the whole idea of, of home and knowing the place where you are has become much more complicated and unfortunately doesn't get talked about that much. It's a very difficult thing to talk about. And, in you know, arguably a lot of the conflicts that you've had to deal with are tied to that, right? How does, how does home fit in as a place where people belong and where other people maybe are seen as not to belong? I just feel like I'm a hybrid sometimes, Mm -hmm. just a hybrid of faiths. I'm a hybrid of identities, just like this weird mix. (laughs) And I exist in that. Yeah. Yeah, And I agree with you. There is strength in that, but there's also the who am I kind of. Where do I belong? Mm -hmm. I don't know where I belong. (laughs) Such an existentialist (laughs) moment I'm having right now. We cannot end on this note, Ralph. We'll have to. I have, a, I have actually a very, a very practical question to ask too, which is since I think a, I think that our, our our podcast here is really concerned with media literacy issues. What do you? How do you find out about what's going on in the world? What do you look at? Where do you turn for information? Like, uh, is there? Do you have a routine of things that you look at yeah. every day? What do you do? I listen to NPR and NPR in the morning. I read the New York Times. I read the New Yorker. Mm-hmm. Um, what else? Twitter. Mm-hmm. I scroll through Twitter because I've curated my feed too. See, it's like what I want to hear. Huh? <laughs> You're in the bubble. I'm oh in no, my own bubble. No, I listen to NPR, and uh-huh. that's not curated. What about the rest of the world? I mean, do you, do you get enough about the rest of the world through those sources? Or mm, NPR you... is domestic. New mm-hmm. York Times. There's a world section. Mm-hmm. Um, Al Jazeera. Mm-hmm. I find is a very good. Um, resource for international news. Mm-hmm. I, I listen and uh, watch Al Jazeera a lot. I listen to podcasts on Al Jazeera. Um, I listen to podcasts in general. Mm-hmm. Podcasts are great. I think it's an oversaturated market, but it's great. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. Well, we like to do our part here. No, you know, to no, help, help I'm, gonna, I'm going to promote you. <laughs> I will share on my page. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Tanya, for thank coming you for in and talking me. to us. And thank you, Alani, it's for such joining an honor. us. Also. Thank you. Yeah, thank and, you for saying yes. Yes. And, and <laughs> thank we you will, for asking for yeah, me to be here. We will be bringing uh, future episodes of this podcast that will feature some of the other guests on the show. And um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ralph.